that more people aren't grabbing a guitar and learning how to play. And to, to make a long story short, what Sweetwater had noticed is that part of the reason that people don't purchase musical instruments is that they're super intimidated by the process of walking into a musical instrument shop. Anybody who works there is probably a veteran musician. They may even be a semi-professional musician. And these are individuals who really geek out on all of the different facets and features of a guitar or drums or heads or cymbals or keyboards or whatever. And sometimes the frequency they're resonating at can be so high and so detailed and so nerdy. Intense. Yeah, intense that like the novice who comes in who doesn't even know what the fret of a guitar is or like how to even think about purchasing a guitar and how to even learn one. Welcome to the Jeff Larson Show where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, we've got David Schoenthal. David, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. So I want to talk about the book. I want to talk about your time at IDEO, what you're doing at the university. Can you give people just a quick background on the, the life of Dave Schoenthal to this point? Sure. So I don't know how far back in time you want me to go, but maybe rele relevant to this conversation, spent about 20 years in innovation and entrepreneurship, both on the operating side of startups, particularly in the healthcare space, as well as on the investing side, working for venture capital. Along the way, wound up spending 10 years at IDEO, which is a design and innovation consultancy, working specifically on IDEO's projects around emerging businesses, so startups and new businesses that bigger companies were trying to launch, taking that experience in entrepreneurship and applying it to a a broader innovation landscape. And then about 10 years ago, wound up moving back to Chicago and taking a job at Northwestern, teaching entrepreneurship and innovation and design courses at the Kellogg School and have been doing that ever since. So now my role is most of my time at Kellogg teaching and doing research, and then also some time still in the venture capital space, specifically focused on consumer-focused healthcare. And, and which VC firms? So I was with Pritzker Group Venture Capital for a number of years, which is a general fund based out of Chicago, and I'm now with Seven Wire Ventures, which is a digital health-focused fund also based in Chicago. And prior to both of those was at Tavistock Life Sciences, which is a life sciences and medical device-focused fund. And is that the one that's focused on Japan? No. So there's another one. So I'm also an advisor to a fund called Design for Ventures, which is actually in close partnership with IDEO that invests specifically in early stage design-led Japanese startups. So I've been involved with D4V for almost three years now. Very cool. So tell us about the new book. Give it, give us, give us the overview. Yeah. I just started it. I really wish I'd, I'd read it before we, we got here, but like, I'm a super audiobook nerd. If you don't count like three or 400 books in the Jason Bourne genre, I've listened to maybe like 850 or 900 business books in the last dozen years. And yeah. you're off to like a strong start. I will say that. Well, that, that's good. I, I have to say, and, and maybe this is a little bit too vulnerable and transparent. The, I can't listen to the audiobook version of our book because it's read <laughs> from a, it's read by a dude who I thought when I first heard I'm like this is a robot like it's a robot reading the book and then I was like oh no it's actually a person reading the book they just happen to sound a little like a robot so if you're into the singularity definitely read, <laughs> read the audiobook and listen to the audiobook but I'm, I'm glad you're you're getting into it so the book is really the the product of some collaboration between myself and one of my colleagues at Kellogg a gentleman by the name of Lauren Nordgren Lauren is a psychologist by background and he and I have spent a number of years working together at Kellogg, me from an innovation angle and Lauren from a psychology and behavioral design perspective. And one of the things that had been on both of our minds and something both of us were thinking about myself from the entrepreneurship and innovation lens and Lauren from the behavioral psychology lens is why? 
why is it? Can we can we come up with a framework that helps explain why people say no to what are clearly good new ideas? And this is a problem that I experience both as an operator of startup businesses, but also an investor in startup businesses. These are businesses that are trying to do really meaningful stuff to change people's lives for the better. They're significantly better than whatever people were using before. They can do it at a lower cost and achieve better outcomes. Why on earth wouldn't everybody be clamoring to say yes? Surely there must be something about the human condition that stops us from readily accepting what are otherwise good ideas. And so that started this adventure that Lauren and I, Lauren and I began a few years ago, which is trying to develop a theory or a framework that explains not only why people resist new ideas, but how to devise some remedies to overcome that resistance. Well, I think I'm excited about it. I made a comparison and you can tell me if you like this comparison or not. Okay. I, do you know The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker, the guy I did. who studied at Harvard? I do. I, I, I've not read it, but I know of it. So I'm, I'm a fan. I was rereading it this spring and he made the comparison of like Mark Marenzelgen and positive psychology of like mm-hmm. that world spent so much time how to get people out of a deficit. Like, hey, things are going rough for you. Here's how we get you. Here's how we get you out of this bad mental state or help you with your mental health troubles, whatever. And he said that it just ends up that like learning how to overcome gravity is not the same. It's like learning how to resist gravity or, or overcome gravity is not the same skill set as getting an airplane to fly. Yet you have to learn ther- thermodynamics and, and how, you know, how, how wind's going to move around a foil to get an airplane to lift. Mm-hmm. Jeff, like you can't study gravity enough to get an airplane to fly. And he's like, in psychology, by only studying the negative, that can get you back to zero, but it's actually a different skill set that gets you above zero. And your premise of like, just making your innovation more attractive may not be enough. Like overcoming the friction, overcoming the friction that's keeping them from the change. I, I don't know if this is where you're going, but this is where I feel like the book is going, is a different skill set. Like it's not, it's not just the same thing, but more or something. Like you actually have to think about this. And it's like immediately made me think about like some of the famous change books, like John Cotter stuff and, and like these ideas of like, there's two halves to this coin and overdoing out of one half isn't going to be enough. No, am I, how am I doing? You're great. I mean, you don't, don't even read the rest of the book. You're perfect. No, it's, you're exactly right. I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but, but this is really the whole framework or metaphor we're trying to tee up. We talk about fuel and friction. Fuel are all of the forces that propel people towards the change you want them to make. And frictions are the forces that stand in the way of that change. There are lots of things written about fuel, like how to make an idea more attractive, how to come up with the right features and benefits, how to understand your customers better, how to market it better, but different business models you can create. But we're really writing this work from the standpoint that having a desirable idea or a desirable offer is table stakes. Like if you don't have a desirable thing, like the rest of this doesn't matter, but that's only one to your point, one half of the coin, right? Making something that people want is one piece of it. Introducing that thing to your audience in a way they're appealing and are receptive to is something entirely different. And there's a lot about the idea written. There's less written about how to introduce that idea to the audience, which is really what we're trying to shed light on here. So can you expand on this concept of friction as as the two of you define it and study it? Yeah. So again, two forces at play, two primary forces at play anytime you're trying to get somebody to do something new. Fuel, which are the things that motivate people to change, all of the kind of four Ps of the marketing mix and all of the things that we know as innovators about how to make ideas better. Frictions are those forces that stand in the way or resist those new ideas. And in the book, we break them down into four groups, four frictions that stand in the way of change. The first is inertia, which is a human being's overwhelming tendency to stick with the status quo, despite the fact
fact that they they know the status quo is inadequate. This explains why people in market research will say, sure, I'll try that new product or I'll try that new thing. Or when you go into a meeting and somebody says, yes, we're eager to embrace this new strategy or embrace this new idea. And then when it comes time for them to actually use the product or, or implement the strategy, it's crickets, like they sort of disappear. What is standing in the way? One of the things is largely probably inertia, which is that we always favor things that are familiar to things that are unfamiliar. The second friction we talk about is the friction of effort. All of the physical, mental, economic exertion required by somebody in order to adopt the change. And it's not just the costliness of it or the physical effort I have to put in. Sometimes it's just about ambiguity. The more ambiguous a change is, the more I will resist it because the path to that change is not clear. The third is emotion. And this is probably the trickiest of the four because it's the one that's hardest to find. These are the anxieties or trepidations or fears people have about trying something new. And anytime you're asking somebody to depart from what they know and what they're familiar with to something entirely different, there's always going to be a level of anxiety or fear or a lack of confidence that will get in the way. How do we identify those sources and overcome them? And then the fourth is something we refer to as reactants, which is really just a tidy way of saying people do not like to be changed by others. And we, when we feel like we are being changed by others, will push back against that change with equal, if not greater force. It doesn't mean that the person trying to change us doesn't know a lot. They don't have great knowledge. But if we feel like we're being forced into doing something, our instinct to react in a way that pushes against that change takes over and we experience that friction of reactance. So in the book, we talk about how to identify these frictions and then also how to devise ways of getting past them. So, so let's go over these four again. Sure. Give me the titles for each of the four one more time. Inertia, effort, emotion, and reactance. And again, tell me again the aspect of emotions that you just... So again, emotion is really around why, what people are feeling that makes them resistant to some new change. Is it anxiety? Is it trepidation? What oh, yeah. could it be? And usually it's like, sometimes it's small things that, that make a big difference. We talk in, for example, in one case about in particular emotion in the book, which you'll, you'll get to eventually. The biggest music retailer in the United States is a company called Sweetwater Sound. They make musical instruments. They sell musical instruments and sound equipment. They are by far the largest musical instrument retailer in the country, overtaking places like a guitar center and others. In fact, while guitar center was having some of their worst sales on the on record in the company's history, Sweetwater was growing year over year over year. So how is it that one music musical instrument retailer can thrive and another languages languishes in the same period of time? And we dove into understanding a little bit better. And, and to make a long story short, the way that Sweetwater engages with customers is radically different than most musical instrument stores. Most musical instrument stores, and I don't know, Jess, if you've ever been a musician or attempted to be a musician, what we find is that there's actually a lot of people that aspire aspire to learning how to play guitar, but for one reason or another don't, or they have played drums or something when they were a kid and then they haven't picked them up since. Like, so clearly there's motivation to pick up and learn these musical instruments. Why is it that more people aren't grabbing a guitar and learning how to play? And to, to make a long story short, what Sweetwater had noticed is that part of the reason that people don't purchase musical instruments is that they're super intimidated by the process of walking into a musical instrument shop. Anybody who works there is probably a veteran musician. They may even be a semi-professional musician. And these are individuals who really geek out on all of the different facets and features of a guitar or drums or heads or cymbals or keyboards or whatever. And sometimes the frequency they're resonating at can be so high and so detailed and so nerdy. Intense. 
Yeah, intense that like the novice who comes in who doesn't even know what the fret of a guitar is or like how to even think about purchasing a guitar and how to even start learning and what books to use. The distance between the expert who's trying to sell them and the novice who's just trying to get comfortable with the idea of whether or not this is a good idea is pretty big. And so what Sweetwater has done deliberately is knowing that this emotional friction of anxiety of the uninitiated stands in the way is they've deliberately modified how they speak to their customers about meeting them where they are in terms of their level of comfort or conversancy, celebrating somebody's desire to pick up an instrument, taking the first step to call Sweetwater and give, you know, having the confidence to learn a little bit more. And so even just by reorienting the experience, knowing that most customers come in being fearful and anxious and most retailers coming in trying to sell you all sorts of features and benefits by understanding that what customers really want is to get comfortable with the idea of becoming a musician. Sweetwater has adjusted their style to address that emotional friction and year over year a huge part of their growth comes from activating what i would call like a latent musician people who desire to be a guitar player but have never had the confidence to pick up a guitar sweetwater gives them that confidence what's an example of that celebrating the the initial steps so one of the things they do is remind them why they got excited about playing guitar in the first in the first place so like oh you're interested in picking up a guitar like tell me like how long have you been thinking about it oh you've been thinking about it since you were a kid well what stopped you like oh it was economics or the process or the intimidation of learning and like when you play a guitar when you learn how to play guitar what do you think you're going to do you're going to sing a song for your family you're going to join a band so helping them understand helping the, the the sweetwater sales rep learn about the progress these individuals are trying to make can help them think about all right now that i know that this has been what's intimidating you and now that i know that the last time you attempted to do this was 16 years ago here's a couple of thoughts first of all here's a few great beginner guitars they're really easy to understand they're mechanistically simple but a lot has changed about the world of learning musical instruments since you last learned how to play. Like now there's all these great online tutorials. Let me send you a link to a couple. Here's a couple of phenomenal ones that I've used and I recommend a lot to people. Here's some great play along videos you can learn. Here's some podcasts you might listen to. But basically what they view their job as doing is removing all of these little bits of friction because the idea of playing the guitar doesn't need further amplification. What needs to be done in order to get them to say yes is to remove all of this headwind that stands in the way. So to make a long okay, story short, to make a long story short, it's like generating understanding and empathy for the people who you're trying to help. Well, I love that story. I mean, so we're at our commercial real estate fund. We're doing these like small Airbnb resorts. They're like super artistic and stuff. But the whole theme is around action sports families, mm -hmm. and that just makes me think about yeah, what about what about the families that are interested in it but don't consider themselves like a hardcore action sports family? Are we actually welcoming to them? What are we doing for the beginner? How are we how are we lowering the intimidation or the uncertainty or the will I look dumb factor? You know, like yeah. what like we probably need video series on, hey, so you're going to start on the, think about like ski routes. Well, you know, black, blue, and green level bike jumps at our places. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like have we created a culture and are we making it simple for the folks that aren't, you know, didn't spend their entire youth breaking limbs and getting bruises, right? That are thinking, oh, maybe I'd like to try it now. Like, what are we doing to reduce that? And I, right now it's nothing. I just listened to you. I'm like, oh man, we need to spend time on that. Well, and, and this is really where, you know, you hear people talking about taking a bigger slice of an existing pie or growing the size of the pie. This is how you grow the size of a market is by 
activating latent demand. And basically the business, and this is, I, I would encourage your listeners, but, but also just talking about your business, the business you're in is not the product you sell. The business you're in is the progress you help people make in their life. So if you're a home builder, business you're in is not building homes. The business you're in is trying to help people minimize the amount of effort they keep to keeping up their house or transition their life from their family home to a, a condo or transition from the world they used to live into one of adventure sports. The progress they're trying to make is becoming that active person they want to be, not necessarily the vessel that contains all their gear. So if you view your job as helping people become the active person they've always wanted to be, maybe it's not just selling them homes. Maybe it's also like creating some sort of onboarding process or like teaming them up with a pro who knows how to get them comfortable or whatever it might be. I think this is really just a shift of, of orientation from being product focused to progress focused. I think that's on our views, their job is unlocking the dormant musician in all of us. Like everybody has a little bit of a fascination of picking up an instrument. How do they go about unlocking that dormancy and activating it? That's awesome. That's so great. Okay. Tell us, tell us another one of your favorite stories from the book. Well, I mean, I could tell you favorite stories from the book or even just examples of how these frictions show up in kind of surprising ways. One from the book that, that I do like to tell is really around effort and also a little bit around the friction of emotion. So the friction of effort and friction of emotion, effort, the un, like the perceived amount of exertion required to implement a change and then emotion, the undesired feelings we might cause in others. There's a company here in the Chicago area that makes custom furniture and their value proposition is that they make custom furniture for like 70% less than other custom furniture manufacturers. So if you buy a custom sofa, and when I say custom sofa, I mean, you can customize everything from the size to the shape to the material materials to the color to the hardware to the wood to like everything they can do that for 70 percent less than typical custom furniture which typically brings it into a price parity with like pottery barn or crate and barrel which is in a different league than normal custom furniture and then in normal times their really key value proposition is they can deliver this to your home in under 10 weeks which is just completely game-changing for custom furniture the problem they found is that people come to their website and spend you know 10 20 30 minutes on their site customizing the perfect sofa they spend 45 minutes in one of their retail shops customizing the perfect sofa so there's clearly a lot of fuel behind the idea that gets people excited about this in the first place but then right when they're about to click buy after they've customized the sofa or right after they've put together the bill of goods in the retail store and they're about to put their credit card down to sign one thing one one really interesting thing that happens is like more often than not people just walk away they bail the interesting thing that happens is nothing and they do what we sometimes refer to in e-commerce is they abandon their cart they've spent some time filling up their cart but something's stopping them and they leave everything in their cart and they walk away and now if you're the entrepreneur or the company who's creating these sofas what is your instinct about why people are leaving if you come from a fuel-based perspective, your instinct is probably, well, they see the final price and they're not sure it's affordable, or they're not clear on the money-back guarantee or the delivery timeline, or now that they've seen taxes added up, it just you know changes their perspective on cost, or they've added a bunch of really expensive stuff. So it must be around cost. It must be we're not explaining our customer satisfaction policy clearly enough. So what do they do? They run promotions, or they reduce the cost, or they change around how they speak about their money-back guarantee, or whatever it might be, Constantly trying to add additional fuel to the idea of helping people get comfortable with purchasing these sofas. Not surprisingly, not 
that doesn't have a lot of impact. In fact, what it winds up doing is eroding their margin. It doesn't necessarily drive greater increase in sales. And so we went in to do some research around what was really going on in a consumer's head that caused them to abandon their cart. And when you interview these people, one of the themes that comes up again and again, which is pretty surprising, is that individuals will not allow themselves to buy a brand new custom sofa until they figure out what they are going to do with their existing sofa, which sounds ridiculous. You're like, wait, what? But when you think about it, it's kind of a good question. Like, well, if I live in a walk-up, like, do I have to lug this sofa down the stairs by myself? Do I have to, like, call a bunch of friends and bring in a bunch of favors so that people help me disassemble this thing and carry it down? What happens if I scuff up the walls? Like, once I'm, like, even if I get it down, do I just, like, leave it in the alley? And does, like, a garbage truck come pick it up? Am I going to get fined for this? So until they could figure out what to do about removing the existing sofa, they would not allow, allow themselves to take away or to purchase the new sofa. Now, you hear this and the solution is obvious, right? Like, the solution is, well, clearly you pick up their existing sofa when you drop off the new one. And, of course, that's what they did and conversion went 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 significantly higher but until you know that it's this effort related friction and this emotional friction you could continue to do price promotions and discounts and sales and change around the copy on your website ad nauseum and never actually identify the real reason that people say no and so this example as well as the other examples we talk about in the book hopefully shed light on the fact that really removing friction can be even more powerful and is almost always more cost effective than adding fuel you know i think about the look i'm so I'm kind of an ideo nerd so i was really interested to hear about your background and then it sounds like very it sounds like there's probably some influences from your years there you know like i think about the books that i've written or i've been able to take a couple of classes you know i took one at the d school at stanford and mm. and you know when creative confidence came out i went and, and listened to him speak and stuff like this and uh as you're talking, I'm just hearing this, like, I don't know, the human-centered design aspects seem to be leaking through. Can, can we do this for a second? For people who don't understand just how impressive IDEO is, can you give, like, a little bit of a background there? And yeah. then uh, I've got some questions for you. Sure. So IDEO is one of, if not the the most well-known design and innovation firms in the world. It began as an industrial design firm off the campus of Stanford, where David Kelly and a few others banded together to form what they would have called an integrated design firm. Previously, if you were working in an industrial design or product design, you would have got a bunch of requirements from an outside group thrown over the wall to you, and then you build the thing according to those specifications, and then you pass that thing back over the wall. What David Kelly and Bill Mogridge and some of the original founders of IDEO knew to be true is that unless you truly understand the, the needs of the people you're designing for, you might not be designing the right thing. You might not be designing something that is truly desirable or really gets at them from that, not just functional level, but social and emotional level. So IDEO is one of the first design firms to bring in human factors and design research to employ anthropologists and psychologists and sociologists as part of the research capability of the firm, as well as industrial designers and product designers and software designers, as well as what we oftentimes refer to as business designers, which are the people that can help design business models to introduce these things to market that are as innovative as the products and services themselves. And I think that of all of the things that has helped IDEO become what it is, and, and it's been going for 30 plus years, it's really the insights piece that I think is its biggest differentiator. IDEO and people that work at IDEO and formerly worked at IDEO have an ability to learn things about people and uncover things about people that other firms haven't quite figured out. 
And I think it is that research piece, that empathy piece, that understanding piece that is really its unique advantage. Now, you're absolutely right that a lot of the work that I've done at IDEO is very influential on a lot of my work, both the Kellogg as well as the book. But I think that that where IDEO has room to grow, and I, I know that this framework is actually now being used on IDEO projects, which is super exciting, is not just the design of the idea or the design of the thing, but also designing how that thing is introduced to the world. And I think most design firms spend a lot of idea coming up with the killer idea or the prototypes or the, the new business models, but we spend less time thinking about how to introduce those things to their intended audience in a way that minimizes the friction. Because because coming up with the idea, as you mentioned, is only one part of the equation. The other side needs a little more attention. Yeah, that's interesting because I remember hearing David Kelly speak and talking about like, you know, when Steve Jobs would call him at three in the morning with another idea, you know, like, I think it's after the mouse, maybe even after the IMAX where I can't remember what, I can't remember what Apple project it was, but it's like Steve would call them at all hours of the day, whatever, right? But it was, it was always product, product, product. And, you know, I didn't hear those elements in those stories. I'm interested when you think about, when you think about this idea of introduction, is there, you know, like I get that the, the four frictions are elements. Is there an overarching umbrella? Like, how would you, how would you help? Let's say, so we have a lot of CEOs of startups that listen to the show and investment fund managers and people. As as those of us in that space are thinking about our introductions, are there some like, you know, something that if we were going to get a tattoo, we should get a tattoo that says what? Yeah, I'd get a tattoo that has the friction map on it. So we've got a framework in the book that we call a friction map or a friction report. And just like I know you've had Alex Osterwalder on the program and, and Steve Blank and others, whereas Alex has his business model canvas, which is a phenomenal tool for taking all of the different dimensions of a business model and laying it out in a sketch level format that you can use to prototype and test your hypotheses. The same is also true of the friction map and the friction report. And what we ask teams to do before they begin a project, before they begin thinking about new features or even building a venture altogether or coming up with a new strategy is to sit down with this friction map, which talks about inertia, talks about effort, talks about emotion and reactance, and just hypothesize, like based on the audience we're intending to deliver this to, where do we think sources of inertia related friction might come from? How is it the idea? How is the newness of this idea going to be perceived in some way as threatening or or overwhelming to somebody who we might intend it for? Are there ways we can get ahead of that? What are the sources of effort that we think people are going to feel? Is it the ambiguity of how we're rolling this out? How do we give them more of a clear roadmap? How might we take this big initiative and instead of going at it from the top down, start small and go at it from the bottom up to minimize the amount of effort? Same with emotion, same with reactants. And we have people sort of throw post-it notes on this on this on this poster and say like here are the things we believe might be true let's design a couple experiments to find out if in fact we do think they're going to be sources and how might we design those remedies into the introduction because the other thing that we know about friction is it's usually very expensive to fix once it presents itself so the key is getting ahead of it and mitigating it in the first place and so by having right. this part of the original project kickoff and the original project materials we can encourage people to think about it in advance versus deal with it after it presents itself well, okay. I think it's a great place to end for part one because I want to talk about these experiments. So, and I'm going to go get the tattoo and I'll, I'll come back for episode two. Okay, good. Okay, good. Where are the best places for people to connect with you to get their own copies of the book to, yeah. to find out more? 
Uh, the book is anywhere good books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, independent bookstores, feel free to, to find them there. Uh, if you're looking for more information on me, you can find it at davidschoenthal.com. Uh, spelling is a little wonky, S-C-H-O-N-T-H-A-L. And you can find more information there. And I bought, I bought my copy on Audible. I gotta tell you, it's not bad. I listen to things sped up though. So maybe I would know. Oh, there you go. If you listen to it one and a half times and maybe, and you know, maybe that's the reason they do it in robot voice is to reduce the friction of people listening to it at one and a half times speed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've convinced you, but that seemed to make sense in my head. Yeah. No. So I listen at three and a half speed. So oh, it's, it's like, no, it's, it sounds like the chipmunks. Yeah. You know what? So it's like it's like uh, ski goggles, you know, like when you go skiing and everything looks yellow in the morning when you mm. put your goggles on, and then it lights yeah. everything looks clear. Yeah. Your brain ends up doing that over time. That's true. So maybe we'll do the the next part of this interview at three and a half times speed. And I'll talk to you like yeah. that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Okay, everybody, please tune in for part two.